Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. Today, I'm here with Professor Jeff Price, who is a lecturer in international law at the School of Advanced International Studies and a fellow of its Foreign Policy Institute. He also practices international law at Steptoe & Johnson. In the 1990s, he served as special counsel in the Defense Department, and in that capacity, Jeff negotiated nuclear disarmament agreements with Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. So, Jeff, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. And I think today what's most present in our minds is the INF Treaty. And for those of our listeners that don't know, it stands for the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And it's been described as one of the most successful nuclear arms control treaties ever and a cornerstone of the European security since it was signed in 87 by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. Now, in more recent times, the Trump administration has announced a suspension of U.S. treaty obligations after accusing Russia of a material breach and gave the required six months notice of withdrawal, which will allow it to terminate the treaty in early August, obviously coming up. This, together with the impending expiration of the new START treaty in 2021, raises the prospect of a situation with no bilateral nuclear arms treaty between Russia and the United States. So Jeff, I wanna start with some basics. How did the INF Treaty originate, and was it a good deal for the West? Uh, that's a great question. So I think it's important for people to uh, understand the context in which this treaty uh, was negotiated. It, it started in the 1970s in the middle of the Cold War, and the situation was that Russia had reached strategic nuclear parity with the United States. The Warsaw Pact had conventional military superiority, most people thought, over NATO, and in this context, Russia started, uh, the Soviet Union started deploying new, fast, intermediate range uh, nuclear missiles with uh, a triple warhead called the SS 20. This caused considerable anxiety uh, in Europe, particularly in Germany, and uh, Germany fearful of uh, a concept called decoupling, where uh, the United States would, would not uh, be incentivized to, as they said, uh, trade Chicago for Bonn, uh, wanted the reassurance of a U.S. nuclear presence that was intermediate range, similar to the SS-20. So you had SS-20s on the Soviet side and a decision by NATO to deploy a countervailing intermediate range nuclear missile uh, called the Pershing-2, as well as uh, cruise missiles. Um, so in 1979, NATO decided as, a, as an alliance, one, to deploy these new Euro missiles, uh, but also to engage in negotiations with the Soviets uh, to reduce uh, these intermediate range missiles on both sides. Uh, and it was not an easy negotiation. Um, the Russia basically um, dug in their heels, not believing that the Europeans uh, would, it, would it actually deploy these missiles. And so you had a huge, fractious, uh, dramatic debate within European countries over the deployment. Um, the Russians walked out when the deployments took place and didn't actually come back until 1985. Uh, Gorbachev becomes president. So it was, it was a very divisive, difficult uh, negotiation that nobody 
uncertainty who is involved on the NATO side would ever want to go through again. But the combination of uh, European request for missiles uh, going through a very difficult uh, political situation in, in the alliance and in Europe, and finally Gorbachev yielded what I think most people in the West would consider to be a very advantageous uh, treaty uh, signed by Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev in 1987. And, and how was it a good deal? Why do you think it was advantageous at the time? Well, um, uh, you could listen to Putin. He certainly thinks it was a bad deal for, for their side. They had to eliminate, uh, I believe, 1,846 missiles, many of them triple warhead. We eliminated 846, so less than half the number. But more important, um, you have to remember geography. When you're talking about uh, these, these are intermediate range missiles, missiles with a range of 500 to 5,500 kilometers. So they can reach all of Europe from the Soviet Union or Russia and vice versa. They can't reach between the United States uh, and Russia or the Soviet Union. So, so they're basically uh, theater missiles, missiles that would hit our allies and not us. Um, the treaty eliminates all land-based missiles of this range, conventional or, or nuclear. So it, what it does is it deprives Russia uh, of one of its principal strategic advantages, which is its location and the fact that it has the largest territory of any country in the world. Uh, so Russia, using land-based missiles, can deploy them on a territory that stretches from east of Japan to Poland. So that, as a land power, um, land-based missiles give Russia a great advantage, and it eliminates... Uh, all land-based missiles uh, of intermediate range. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't affect either air-based or sea-based missiles. And the United States, as a sea power and with the world's uh, most powerful air force, benefits uh, comparatively by the ability to use conventional or, or, or nuclear uh, cruise missiles uh, that are based on sea and air, and, and those aren't affected by the treaty. So, Jeff, 1987 obviously was a while ago. Uh, John Bolton, as you know, has gone on record to say that times change. Nothing lasts forever. And according to him, that includes treaties. Now, do you think the INF treaty and the, the deal that was struck, is that a Cold War relic or is it still relevant to the times? Uh, so, in some ways, the situation has changed considerably. Uh, the international security environment is much more dynamic in the Cold War. It was a standoff across, uh, you know, the Iron Curtain, and now you see much more uh, conflict, uh, much more active engagement um, around the world. But remember, this treaty covers conventional as well as uh, nuclear missiles, and in some ways, uh, it's... It, is even more relevant when you consider uh, the use of conventional cruise missiles. Um, not long after this treaty was negotiated, uh, the first conventional use of a sea-launched Tomahawk cruise missile uh, by the United States took place in the in Desert Storm. Uh, and after that, the United States has used, again, sea-launched cruise missiles uh, in Bosnia, in uh, in uh, response to attacks on the Iraqi Kurds in Kosovo against Osama bin Laden. So what you're seeing is a kind of uh, uh, missile that's useful for the United States in a sea launch mode, um, but which is still constrained uh, in, in a land launch mode. And I want to mention one other instance which might be relevant to the Russian uh, 
uh, constraints under the treaty. Um, in 2015, you saw in Syria, uh, the Russians uh, launched uh, against uh, what they called a, a, an ISIS target, cruise missiles from the Caspian Sea. Uh, they launched them from a warship in the Caspian Sea as opposed to say from the Caucasus or other area, which would have been even closer because they were constrained by the INF Treaty from using uh, land-based uh, cruise missiles. So it, the lesson I think here is that is that it's still quite relevant in the sense that it constrains Russia from using its territory to launch cruise missiles um, to a range that really covers all of Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Um, when you consider that that it 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 bans missiles which with a range of up to fifty five hundred kilometers, about three thousand miles. Now, Jeff, as as you pointed out, there are certainly some very concrete constraints on Russia's behavior. But there does appear to be broad agreement between the Obama and Trump administrations that Russia has violated the treaty by testing and deploying a new cruise missile. Doesn't there have to be some response? And if so, what do you think the appropriate response is? Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, for reasons that won't be surprising, uh, Russia has, has disliked this treaty for a long time. And probably since 2007, uh, Putin has wanted to either expand it to other countries or, 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 or to get rid of it. And possibly around that same time, Russia began developing uh, a model of a cruise missile called an INM-729, which uh, U.S. intelligence is, is sure uh, has a range which exceeds uh, the limits uh, of the treaty. And th this was brought up by the Obama administration and, and again in the Trump administration. Uh, it's to, to no satisfactory effect. So the question then becomes, if, if we are convinced that Russia has developed and now fielded a cruise missile, which, which is not compliant because its range exceeds the allowed range, what is the response from the United States? And I think there's basically three possible responses. One is to engage in a treaty-compliant uh, counter so and that has been the, the, the policy of uh, the Obama administration and up until recently was the policy of, of the Trump administration which is to develop counters to deny them any advantage from this non-compliant missile but remain in compliance with the treaty ourselves second possibility would be to suspend the treaty and the third would be to withdraw from the treaty the reason the United States has been very uh, reluctant up to now to do that is, is to not reward Russia by basically absolving it from the obligations of a treaty, which is very much uh, to the advantage of the United States and its allies. Um, so up until February of last year, uh, the military and the State Department had basically uh, developed a strategy which, which was treaty compliant. Uh, and then uh, around the spring of last year, uh, what some people attribute to John Bolton's becoming national security advisor, there was a shift. And in October, uh, President Trump uh, announced that the United States would, you know, no longer be part of the treaty. From an international law perspective, uh, the question was, would the United States suspend its obligations under the treaty? or would it withdraw? And the two are uh, different. 
Suspension is a remedy under customary international law where you're trying to basically preserve the treaty, bring the other side into compliance. So suspension has as its goal uh, to cause a non-compliant counterparty to return to compliance, and it keeps the treaty intact. Withdrawal, which is uh, invoking a provision of the treaty itself, um, basically terminates uh, the treaty. And up until December, there was some sort of ambiguity as to which of the two uh, would be announced by the Trump administration. And in February, it became clear that it was both. Uh, in February, the uh, Trump administration announced both that it was suspending obligations, but also giving the required six months notice to terminate uh, the treaty. Um, and this is obviously in the context of, of a fair amount of diplomacy uh, with the allies and, and you know, the effort to keep a, a common front uh, in NATO. So the, the end result is these, the notice of termination having been given um, in the beginning of August of this year, uh, it's expected that the Trump administration is going to formally terminate the treaty unless uh, something unexpected uh, happens. And I think few people expect that uh, that, that, that is going to happen. Yes, it certainly seems to be the course set. I want to come back to what we think will happen this summer in a minute, but let's pivot to what is really a complicating factor in the sense that, as you know, some have raised concerns about China, and obviously China is not a party to the INF Treaty, mm -hmm. but it has deployed a large number of intermediate-range missiles that would be prohibited if it were. While, of course, the treaty prevents the U.S. from developing and deploying the same in response. How should we think about that factor? How does that play into the INF Treaty and its ability to kind of reach its goals? So that's a second major concern for the U.S. Uh, national security establishment. And, and it, is, it, is, it is clearly the case that China uh, is not part of the treaty regime. There's, there's, there, it would be great if they were. Um, because they've developed, deployed a number of missiles, which are primarily uh, in, in a conventional capacity of great concern to the Navy um, because they create what's called an anti-access area denial capability called A2AD, which poses threats uh, to, uh, in the Navy's view uh, in particular, to, to both our ships and to our, our, our allies and facilities in, in the Asian region. The problems are basically history and geography again. One, um, the treaty was obviously created at a time when the major concern was Russia, um, and China did not have this capability at the time. Second, the concern in some ways seems to be more one of frustration about the Chinese ability uh, that, uh, that that is a bigger uh, concern, I think, than the fact that the U.S. is constrained because as 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 we've already said, um, the treaty doesn't prevent the U.S. from deploying sea-based and air-based missiles to counter the Chinese threat. Um, what it does prevent us from doing is deploying land-based uh, missiles. But again, you know, we are not uh, an Asian country. We don't have territory in Asia in which to deploy these missiles except Guam. Uh, and so the and so the ability that the treaty denies us is 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 less significant, I think, than the fact that China is not constrained. Um, and so while, while it's frustrating, um, what the United States gains by, by termination of the treaty is at this point fairly limited, it seems to me. 
given that we already have the ability to deploy sea-based or air-based missiles in counter to China. Okay, so let's assume for a moment that the Trump administration stays the course, and this summer we're headed towards the end of the, the termination of the INF Treaty. Do you think that that heads us to a path for basically an arms race, as some fear? And if so, or even if not, what arrangements are likely to replace it in a post-INF world? So immediately upon uh, the Trump's uh, administration's uh, February notification, uh, there began a series of sort of statements and, and sort of anticipatory posturing, both from us and from the Kremlin. Um, Putin announced very quickly that he would kind of match what the United States did. So he said, if they're going to suspend, we'll suspend. Um, and if they develop uh, intermediate range missiles, then we will develop intermediate range missiles. And in fact, I think it's pretty clear that they will. Um, he said, if Putin said, we will not be the first to deploy in any region. So if the United States deploys in Europe, then we'll deploy in Europe. If the United States deploys in Asia, then we'll deploy in Asia. But, but the sort of declaratory policy, not legally binding, is, is one of sort of uh, uh, an asserted parity. Uh, NATO, for its part, uh, very quickly said that there's no plans to deploy nuclear-armed intermediate-range missiles in Europe. So you're already seeing, you know, some people call it an arms race. I would say it's more of a dance as far as sort of putting out at least uh, declaratory uh, positions on the arrangements uh, post-INF. Uh, what, what I think is of more concern is that um, if you eliminate this regime of controlling missiles, um, over time, I think Russia will see incentives uh, to develop more uh, intermediate-range missiles. Why? One, because if you're Russia, you know, to be impolite, they're a declining power, a declining population. One of the few things they have is a very large territory, they have oil and gas, and they have missiles. Um, and one of the things that they feature in uh, public pronouncements, one of the things that, that allows them to... to engage in uh, sort of military diplomacy, things like the S-400 missile, which is causing problems between us and Turkey right now because they're, it's one of the few things they have that's attractive. I am concerned that Russia will see uh, the combination of its missile capability and its geography as something that tempts it to, to, to invest more in, um, in intermediate uh, missile capability. Uh, so we will see... Um, what arrangements uh, come about if, if, if we do indeed go into a post-INF world. Um, another thing I, I do think is worrying is um, that the INF treaty, by eliminating the entire class of intermediate-range missiles, um, reinforced the structure of strategic nuclear arms control. So the INF treaty eliminates missiles up to 5,500-kilometer range. The strategic... Uh, Arms Reduction Treaty starts at 5,500 uh, kilometer range. And so it made, the fact you had an INF treaty made the edges uh, of, of the START treaty uh, very clear. Either a missile was banned under the INF treaty or it was counted under the START treaty. And if you don't have any limitations in the intermediate range, then I think you complicate um, the ability to, to, uh, to reinforce the START framework and you make it harder to do what a lot of people say they want to do, which is to eliminate 
tactical, non-strategic, shorter-range nuclear weapons because if there's no limitation uh, on missiles up to five, uh, over 500 kilometers, then it's harder to enforce any possible agreement that would eliminate missiles under 500 kilometers. So uh, it, it's a fairly technical um, set of frameworks, but I think a very important one. Uh, and, and you know, I, I think we, we do want to pay attention to, to how this international uh, regime uh, for controlling nuclear weapons uh, evolves over the next uh, few months and also the next uh, few years because the START Treaty itself expires at the beginning of 2021. And there's a debate right now as to whether it, 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 it will be extended. So, Jeff, uh, on that note, um, you've obviously spent a large part of your career negotiating nuclear disarmament agreements. What keeps you up at night when you think about the future of nuclear disarmament or perhaps the arming of nuclear weapons? What is the piece that worries you the most? One of them is um, the, the, the prospect, which I hope both sides uh, are going to avoid, of, of a redeployment of short-range, uh, fast nuclear missiles in Europe because um, we already have a short enough warning time uh, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Um, if a missile has a 20 to 30 minute flight time, that gives you very little time to react in a crisis. Um, if we were to have another situation where um, you had missiles which, with a flight time that basically gave no warning between the two sides uh, and you created anxiety about decapitation, which is something that the Russians have expressed concern about, uh, you do create a situation where, um, uh, you know, in a crisis, you you have less stability uh, than, than 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 you want. And, and that was the antithesis to well, the goals of the INF Treaty and the, the superstructure around it to begin with, right? Right. I mean, the, the INF Treaty created a much better environment, both I think militarily and politically. Um, and one can only hope that we we you know we preserve as much as possible of, of the stability. Uh, certainly in Europe, uh, that, that that came with that treaty, and and you know, there are other benefits to our uh, our own security um, and and our own uh, military plans. The START treaty is very popular among, say, our strategic command because it gives them predictability, limitations on, on a potential adversary, and visibility and verification of of potential threats. So, um, you know. It's worth noting that one of well, one of the people who professes himself to be one of the biggest fans of the START Treaty is General Hyten, who's the head of Strategic Command. So, hopefully, we can maintain the framework that that does provide you know both some stability, security, and frankly makes uh, makes for a more efficient use of uh, of the very large investment that we're going to be making in nuclear weapons in coming years. Jeff, thanks so much for spending the time going through this with us. Much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. Anytime anybody wants to uh, talk about nuclear arms control, I think it's a good time. Thanks so much. So this has been an episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. If you're interested in this or other issues of international law, please join the American Society of International Law. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>